This morning's reading of God's word comes from 2 Samuel chapter 11, verses 1 through 17 and 26 through 27. You can find this in your pew Bible on page 262 or the following Jesus Bible, pages 326 and 327. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, Is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. Then she returned to her house, and the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. So David sent word to Joab, Send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked how Joab was doing and how the people were doing and how the war was going. Then David said to Uriah, Go down to your house and wash your feet. And Uriah went out of the king's house, and there followed him a present from the king. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his lord, and did not go down to his house. When they told David, Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, Have you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? Uriah said to David, The ark and Israel and Judah dwell in booths, and my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house to eat and to drink and to lie with my wife? As you live and as your souls live, I will not do this thing. Then David said to Uriah, Remain here today also, and tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. And David invited him, and he ate in his presence and drank so that he made him drunk. And in the evening he went out to lie on his couch with his servants of the Lord, but he did not go down to his house. In the morning David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. In the letter he wrote, Set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting, and then draw back from him, that he may be struck down and die. And as Joab was besieging the city, he assigned Uriah to the place where he knew there were valiant men. And the men of the city came out and fought with Joab, and some of the servants of David among the people fell. Uriah the Hittite also died. When when the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah her husband was dead, she lamented over her husband. And when the morning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased Yahweh. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks Thanks be be to God. God. Well, if you have little ones who would like to go for children's worship, we'll give Miss Brittany a split second. Y'all line up behind Miss Brittany. That's kids first grade and under. And uh, Miss Brittany, now with, with children's worship and in Sunday school, these students will stay over there. Parents don't need to go get them or anything like that. So they will go to their Sunday school class from children's worship, correct? All right. So parents, y'all can just go to your class after, after worship as we get our new process uh, figured out. All right, gang. The last two Sundays have been uh, like an autopsy. We've been deeply examining why David failed so catastrophically 
by committing adultery with Uriah's, Uriah's wife, Bathsheba. And what happened? Well, he wasn't careful with his perceiving senses. He saw her bathing and didn't look away. And that perception and the imagining that followed awakened a desire within him that should have remained dormant. So we've talked about the importance of thinking before we satisfy our desires. We've talked about guarding our perception. But we still haven't addressed the most important issue. St. Anselm once defined God in this way. God is the object God is that thing, that being that is greater than anything else you can imagine. So so let's exercise our imaginations this morning. I want you to imagine the most beautiful, you you can close your eyes if you need to. Imagine the most beautiful thing that you could ever see. God is the thing more beautiful than that. I want you to imagine the most good act that you could ever witness. God is the thing that is more good than that. Imagine the most powerful, the most wonder-inducing, the most amazing thing that you can imagine. God is the one who is one step above it all. God is that being that is greater than all our conceivings and all our imaginations. And if only David had remembered that, I think this would have been a very different story. And each of us needs to make this truth a point of regular meditation and indeed imagination that all of our desires find their ultimate satisfaction in intimacy with God. All of our desires. So what should David have done when he perceived this attractive woman and felt his desire awakened? Well, he could have just simply looked away and walked away. Would that have satisfied his awakened desire? No, probably not. But it would have been a virtuous, good, ordinate response, right? It would have been preferable for him to just walk away. Another option, another thing he could have done when he saw Bathsheba. He could have looked away and in response to this awakened desire, sought out companionship and intimacy with his wife. That would have been a better response uh, than what he did for sure. But neither of those options... Though good and virtuous options, neither of those options will ultimately satisfy David. Listen, the moral of this story is not stop doing bad and start doing good. Of course, doing the right thing is always better than doing the wrong thing. I would rather you choose faithfulness to your spouse over unfaithfulness any day of the week. So don't mishear me there. But choosing good over evil doesn't solve our desire problem. Because if he dodges the bullet this time, by sheer force of will or duty, he chooses what's right, you choose what's right, what's going to keep the desire from coming back? It's going to happen. Behavior modification in the moment of temptation, choosing not to do bad and to do good, that's actually not the answer. What is the answer then? What is the moral of the story? The moral of the story is this. While God often does provide good things to satisfy ordinate desires, but all of our desiring beneath those things is meant to drive us to find satisfaction in him. So every desire you have is ultimately a desire for God. Let's think about it. Your tummy might not be grumbling yet. 
It's a little earlier than we're normally in here, but we're going to have a fish fry this afternoon. Joey's going to fix up some catfish for us. Let that rest on your brain for a second. Maybe you start to, maybe it starts to provoke a, a sense of need. It starts to, to drum up some desire in you. That hunger for food, that desire for good, hot, crispy, delicious catfish, that sense of need right now ultimately points you not to fish, but to God in whom one day you will find complete physical satisfaction in the resurrection. Let's think of another sense of need. Do you want to be known by others? Uh, Do you want uh, to be praised? Do you want the appreciation and accolades of the people around you? That's not a bad desire. But that desire is calling you to know Christ, in whom you can have full vindication, complete justification, complete approval. Even your desire, the desire that David feels here for physical intimacy. Your desire for friendship, your desire for companionship and love, that is driving you toward the perfect love of God. Every time you sense a need, it is ultimately a call to know Yahweh God and to be known by Yahweh God. How can I say that with such confidence? Because even good satisfactions leave you still desiring. Even if you overeat this afternoon... Joey's fish. Guess what? Give it three or four hours, and what are you going to be thinking about? You're going to be thinking about eating again. Let's say you get the accolades and praise and acclaim that you so desperately want. It's just not going to last that long. You're going to want more. And your desires for intimacy and love, being understood, even the best spouse, the best friend, won't fully satisfy that need. Why? Because our imaginations can always think of something a little bigger, a little better, a little more satisfying. It seems impossible to satisfy us. And in the midst of this conundrum, we find our brother, some of you will not be surprised to find him here, St. Augustine of Hippo, who said this, to praise you, is the desire of man. You stir man to take pleasure in praising you because you have made us for yourself and our heart is restless until it rests in you. God is the one that we desire underneath all of our desiring. And this is a truth that we learn how? Through things like fasting, We make ourselves hungrier to see that we desire something greater underneath our desire for food. This is a kind of truth that we realize and we learn when we feel irreconcilably forsaken and alone. This is a truth that we learn when we feel as though nobody in the world takes any pleasure or approval in us. This is a lesson that we learn through suffering. Because it's when all the world's satisfactions have completely let us down, when they have utterly failed, when the world's satisfactions have lost their savor, that we begin to realize what we were really made for, what we really longed for. What we want is not the world. It's not the things of this world that our hearts crave. What we crave is our heavenly father, our heavenly brother, our heavenly friend, the triune God. 
But David's imagination was set on the wrong things. What did he fail to think? What did he fail to imagine? He failed to remember the God who loved him. The God that he knew so closely. The God who inspired him to write Psalm 23. Listen, this is David who said this. Yahweh is my shepherd. I shall not want. David had once said, I have no want. I want nothing. And I will not want. I need nothing. Why? Because I have him. He is my shepherd. Now, maybe all this sounds crazy to you. That every desire you have is ultimately an invitation to seek satisfaction in intimacy with Yahweh. But before you'll believe this truth, you need to imagine it. Before you'll ever believe this truth, you need to imagine it. And Jesus used very imaginative language to explain this to the Samaritan woman. He said, listen, I'll give you water that'll make you never thirsty again. Jesus wasn't talking about magic water. He was trying to arouse her imagination to think of something that could possibly be more satisfying than water. He was turning her desires, her thoughts, her imagination toward himself. And I wonder if you've ever really chewed on this idea. If you've ever let your imagination process this notion. Maybe you've never fasted before. Maybe you've never denied your body anything. But when we do these things, it pulls out our imagination and forces us to chew on this idea that every desire is ultimately a call to trust Christ and to know true intimacy with him. But there's an unspoken problem in all this. David was at one time very close to God. He experienced great pleasure in intimacy with him. But at this moment, on his roof, he doesn't. Likewise, I don't always think this way. I want something, a desire is provoked, and it doesn't seem aimed at God at all. As we said a couple weeks ago, a lot of times it's aimed at a quarter pounder with cheese. What is that, how does that desire have anything to do with God? Or my desire is aimed at a, a night out with friends, or, or it's a, aimed at a new car. And in my desiring, I choose good things and bad things, wise things, foolish things. So if our desires are ultimately aimed at God, if he is the one underneath all of our desiring. Why don't we think that way? Why don't we desire that way? Why do I desire lesser things? Why aren't our perceptive senses and our imagination, why aren't they constantly turning back toward God and the satisfaction that he brings? Instead, I seem content to desire and long for lesser things. You see, the problem is not just with our thinking and our desiring. The problem is our hearts. We need more than re-education of our brains. We need a radical reshaping of our thinking, our desiring, our loving. We need a new heart. The two sermons in a row now, uh, I've read a heavily redacted quote from C.S. Lewis's The Abolition of Man. I've been telling you we're going to read a fuller version of it. Today's the day. So grab your worship guide and jump to the front of it. I've got it printed there for you. Just inside the front cover. Listen to Lewis's great wisdom. It's a little thick, but hang with me. Lewis says, No justification of virtue will enable a man to be virtuous. 
Without the aid of trained emotions, the intellect is powerless against the animal organisms. The, 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 the brain is powerless against the gut. Lewis says, I had rather play cards against a man who is quite skeptical about ethics, but bred to believe that a gentleman doesn't cheat, than against an irreproachable moral philosopher who had been brought up among sharpers. In battle, it is not syllogisms, ideas that will keep the reluctant nerves and muscles to their post in the third hour of bombardment. So reason in man must rule the mere appetites by means of the spirited element. He quotes Plato's Republic. The head rules the belly, how? Through the chest, the seat of emotions organized by trained habit into stable sentiments. It is by this middle element, the heart, that man is man. For by his intellect, he is mere spirit, and by his appetite, mere animal. What is Lewis saying? You may have been lost in that. It's a great book if you haven't read The Abolition of Man. It'll take you an hour and a half. Just sit down with a cup of coffee. You'll love it. What is he saying? The head and the gut, your reason and your desires, they meet in the middle at the heart. The seat of emotions, of attraction, of will. And when your desires are aroused, you will not think right or be attracted to the right things without a new heart. If you don't have a new heart, you're not going to want the right things. You're not going to think well. So how do you get that? How can our heads and our hearts be put right? How can our attractions become unbent so that we desire not just good things, but God himself? How can I want God more than I want anything else? Let me be very direct about it. This is the promise of the gospel to all who believe. This is what the gospel promises. Listen to this promise. Uh, that God spoke through Ezekiel. This is many years after David, but many years before Jesus. Through Ezekiel, God said this, And I will give you a new heart, and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and to be careful to obey all my rules. When we read Ezekiel 36, in light of 2 Samuel 11, when we consider what Ezekiel says in light of all this talk we've been doing for the last two weeks about perceiving and desiring and attraction, what conclusions can we make? First, if you trust Christ, you have received the Spirit, and you can expect a miraculous change in your desiring and in your attractions. Now, when I say miraculous, I don't necessarily mean immediate, right? Though it's possible. I know people who have become Christians and were immediately, miraculously set free from addiction to alcohol or drugs, just never touched it again. I know other Christians who, though their addiction continued after becoming a Christian, their satisfaction in that over time began to wane. And their desire for something greater led them on a difficult road of groping for God for many years. And that's not behavior modification. It's heart surgery. It is the demolition and reconstruction of desires and affections. And for the record, those people I know who came to Christ and immediately their addiction was gone, guess what? They had other areas in their life where they had to take the long road of sanctification as well. What's miraculous about the change that the Spirit does in us is not the speed. The miracle is that sinners 
begin to love God, or at the very least, they begin to want to love God. It is a miracle if any human being suddenly wants God more than they did before. It is a miracle when any sinner wants God more than they want themselves and the pleasures of the world. Even that want to is a miracle. So the Holy Spirit generates within a believing person a growing sense of desire for intimacy with God. One that overwhelms and eventually overcomes other desires. So as we'll see in a couple of weeks, David, after his sin, begins to realize what he's throwing away. David realizes that by choosing the satisfaction of sin, he's choosing not to find satisfaction in God. And when he realizes that, he says this in Psalm 51. He says, cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of my salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. So David eventually would realize that the satisfaction he really wanted was not to be found in carnal things, but in God himself. And if you have the Holy Spirit, you too will see this change in your desires. And in response, our attraction toward the things of this world will begin to grow thin. It's just going to happen over time. The things that once satisfied you just start to seem empty. Listen to the bold language of Jesus' disciple John on this point. John said, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world... The love of the Father is not in him. What does John mean? If you love the things of this world, if you seek ultimate satisfaction in the things of this earth, then you have not experienced God's love. To be loved by God is to fall in love with him. And if you've experienced God's love truly, it'll transform your desires. We love because God first loved us. But there's another change to which I want to draw your attention to that we will begin in time to find our perception drawn from the things of the world toward God himself. So in time, as a spirit takes root in you, as your new heart begins to beat and your living and choosing becomes formed by your love for God, as the things of this world seem less worthwhile and less beautiful, you're going to find your senses and your imagination looking for that than which nothing greater could be conceived. Your eyes will begin to roam away from the things of this world, looking for a satisfaction beyond imagining. Grab your Bible, turn with me to Psalm 63 as we near our close. We have a psalm here, again, written by David before he committed this sin, right? Psalm 63. I'll start with the title. Psalm 63 a psalm of David when he was in the wilderness of Judah. O oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. He's in the wilderness. He's in the desert. He's, <laughs> he has real thirst. But he was, my soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory, because your steadfast love is better than life. My lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food, and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips. When I remember you upon my bed, 
and meditate on you in the watches of the night, for you have been my help, and in the shadow of your wings I will sing for joy. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. Does this psalm, the cry of David's heart, does it describe you? Does it describe your heart? Your desires, your affections. I'm not asking if you're perfect. Clearly, David was not. But have you seen this change in your heart? Do you have a new heart? If you do not see the evidence of a new heart within you, flee to God today and beg for one. Look within yourself. Look at the choices that you make on a daily basis. Look at your moments of greatest shame and greatest satisfaction. Look at the thing that you desire above all other desires and look at the things you imagine will meet those desires. Do you see underneath it all a desire to know God and to find yourself complete in Him? If you don't, then flee to Him today. He made you for this. Augustine was right. All of our restless desiring should aim us toward him. So if you run to him today, God will not turn you away. If you confess to God your broken desires, your bent attractions, asking for his forgiveness and renewal, he will give you a new heart. We've talked a lot in the last two weeks about perceiving and thinking and attraction. Listen, resolving to think differently about your desires, it's not going to save you. It's not going to change you. It will not lead to true satisfaction. If you guard your eyes and ears at every turn, that's not going to guarantee you the life you desire, and it certainly won't guarantee you eternal life and eternal satisfaction. Trying to manage and redirect your desires day by day is not the answer. It's all behavior modification, and it fixes nothing ultimately. There's only one answer. Go to Jesus Go to the one who died for your sins and was victorious over your sin. Pour out your brokenness and your failure and your depravity to him and beg him for a new heart. There's no like secret prayer. There's no code you've got to figure out. There's only desperation to be made new. Desperation to be set free from our desires and from this damnable body of flesh. So if you don't see the evidence of a new heart within you, repent. Run to Jesus and beg him. For a new heart. Let's pray. Father, I want to pray for two people this morning. First, Lord, I want to pray for those who don't have a new heart that are here in this room, who have never trusted Christ, who have never been made new by your Spirit. And when they look at their life, maybe they see some satisfaction, but what they don't see is a growing love for you. Lord, I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would press upon them so that they would flee to Christ, confessing their brokenness, their need, and that you would give them a new heart. And Father, I want to pray for those who are here who are like David, who did have a new heart. He who did know you and found satisfaction in you, but made a terrible choice served his flesh, sought satisfaction in the things of this world, and it just wreaked havoc in his life. Lord, for those here who are Christians and who have been living in this way, I pray that they would hear the good news, that there is a God who 
who waits with arms open, who has already forgiven them, and that they would flee to him and begin to imagine that knowing you, God, would be more satisfying than any other satisfaction, and that they would seek that satisfaction more than they seek the satisfaction of sin. The message for all of us, Lord, is to repent. So, oh God, may your kindness be apparent to us, and may we each come to you and know your love. This we pray in the name of Christ.